You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 10, kicking off the Frank Miller read-through with the retelling and retconning of Daredevil's origin in Man Without Fear. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave. This week, we begin a nearly year-long look at Frank Miller's Daredevil, including his time as the penciler, watching him evolve with writing the character, so on and so forth. Miller, with Klaus Janssen, who is kind of an unsung hero, began a run in the late 70s, early 80s that went from 158 to 191, and then they returned for the landmark Born Again series. Long after that, in 1993, Miller teamed with John Romita Jr. to do his own rendition of the origin tale, which added the elements of his run back into the timeline and expanded the story. The result was the five-issue miniseries The Man Without Fear, which was released at an odd time for Daredevil, to say the least. You see, the storyline Fall from Grace was playing out on the main book, which included appearances by Morbius as well as a new black and red costume for Daredevil. Now, at the time, Frank Miller hadn't become the controversial figure he is now. This was before works like Holy Terror, or The Dark Knight Strikes Again, or spouting stuff off on his blog. This was a spot when Frank Miller was a golden boy, still writing the fan praise from his 80s run on Daredevil, as well as Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One. Creatively, Miller was working on comics like Sin City and Hard Boiled, and still had a pretty clean creative record in terms of readers and critics. To give you a bit of background on how Miller came onto the book, Miller broke into comics with some work at Western Publishing, and then he had a few scraps of here and there work at DC before becoming this regular fill-in artist with Marvel. One of these fill-ins was on Spectacular Spider-Man, with issues 27 and 28, which guest-starred Daredevil in a blind Spider-Man. It was interesting, but Miller was fascinated by Daredevil, even though he was more of a Spider-Man fan by his own admission in interviews. But he saw the ultimate hard-boiled superhero. And he lobbied to work on the ongoing title. He really wanted to work on it, so he worked some of his contacts within the office, and Jim Shooter gave him a chance to do this. And since the title wasn't selling like hotcakes, sure, they granted the request, Frank slowly took over the book, ousting the writer, and then made his own vision of Daredevil. And for whatever his latter-day creative sins perceived or real are, he did completely turn Daredevil upside down and inside out, and he gave the character a voice of his own for the first time in a long time, and he put Daredevil rightfully on the top of the pile. His work has been mined by writers of the character ever since. So when sitting down to plan out how this um, Frank Miller read-through would go through, I thought it was very appropriate to begin a look at the work of Miller as an artist and a writer at the end, here with this miniseries, which perfectly starts at the beginning, which is kind of a, a theme with Miller since he wrote the end of Batman, and they came back to write the beginning of Batman. And then there was All-Star Batman and Robin, but that's not on the table here. Now next week, I'll, I'm going to expand a bit on John Romita Jr., a legacy artist who made his own solid stamp on Spider-Man, the X-Men, of course, Daredevil. But first, it's time to begin. Let's take a look at this week's issue, Daredevil Man Without Fear number 1, right after this podcast promo.
My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have mine, you have yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular t- and then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do- it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. well, my pr- it definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. Welcome back. Our comic this week is a prestige format 48-page story that was originally intended to be one slightly shorter graphic novel. As I mentioned, this was a weird time for Daredevil, and comics as a whole really was a time of transition because over on the DC side, Superman was returning from the grave, donning the blue and red costume again for the first time this month with the long hair, and this was happening just as a new Batman graced the cover of Batman number 500 beginning the Night Quest era of Batman. Comic Company's Image and Valiant were crossing over with the deluxe format miniseries Deathmate as Wolverine's adamantium was ripped from his body in the pages of X-Men. So this is in the very zenith of 90s excess and changes to Daredevil came along because we had, well, that red and black costume, which I mixed on, but I'm not here to comment on that. So in this point where all this transition is happening, along comes this debut of the throwback miniseries championing a look back for the character... Not just because of the origin being retold, but because Miller was returning to Daredevil to write the character. And this is the character that set his career in motion. And John Romita Jr. was coming back. Also somebody whose career was boosted by the character while he was simultaneously working on Uncanny X-Men. Another huge notch in his belt career-wise. So at this stage, both of the main creators had made a name for themselves. And Daredevil's book was attracting a lot of attention thanks to, well... Wizard Magazine. So that's the context this is coming out in. Two creators at the top of their game returning to a character that made them who they are and a throwback to the miniseries. So does that make the miniseries good? I don't know. That's just context. Let's take a look at the comic itself to answer that question of quality. So Daredevil, The Man Without Fear number one was released with a cover date of October 1993. The cover depicts a young Matt Murdock in the foreground with the body of Jack Murdock bleeding in his arms. The spectral form of Daredevil looms in the background drawn only in red ink and outlines. And the framework of the covers will remain consistent in the theme. There's a border on one side, normally black or or kind of a slate color, with a rendition of Daredevil in the background, the ghostly image, and a color image in the foreground. As this was the 90s, the red portions, the Daredevil ghost outline, uh, that was always a foil on the original covers. Reprints seem to have gotten rid of that. Of course, this piece was written by Frank Miller, penciled by John Romita Jr. Other credits include Al Williamson on inks, Joseph Rosen on letters, and Christy Scheel on colors. And the story opens to summertime in Hell's Kitchen when Matt Murdock was just a boy and a bit of a delinquent, to be honest with you. He's wearing a ski mask and riding a skateboard, and Matt steals a policeman's nightstick as he's chewing out some kids for opening up a fire hydrant and evades capture by slipping into Fogwell's boxing gym. Let me stop there for just a moment. Here we have less of a retcon and more of an addition. There are going to be plenty of retcons, but we aren't quite in the realm of time that Daredevil number one covered. We're very close, but we're not quite there. 
If we're being nitpicky, that means Matt is about seven or eight. And how appropriate is it that Matt chooses to steal a nightstick? Surely that won't come back. And of course, yeah, it's foreshadowing, but Miller isn't beating us over the head with it. Pun intended. But what he is beating us over the head with is the fact that the cop talking about the Murdoch boy as Matt is in a mask, we get it. That Murdoch boy never gets in trouble, and of course Matt's stealing his nightstick. Haha, <laughs> I see what you did. The cop, by the way, is named Officer Leibowitz, which seems to be a reference to Jack Leibowitz, one of the founders of DC Comics. And, and a funny thing is, Frank Miller would later place an officer named Leibowitz into his script for The Spirit, and then actually portray the character on screen. I'm not sure if the symbolism is supposed to be there, if DC was the old guard, or if they were incompetent with their authority. As far as I know, his relationship with DC has been fine. He did come back for Dark Knight Strikes again. I didn't realize there was a rift until Holy Terror came into it, and the DC said, don't use Batman for this, please. Additionally, I don't know if there was a personal feud between Leibowitz. After all, the character that Frank played ended up having his head ripped off after only a few minutes of screen time. It's an idea that will have to be left to subjection. I never found any evidence of what Miller was implying in interviews or otherwise, but Miller's descriptions, to turn this on a positive notes, are almost poetic. Things like the gym smells like sawdust and old sweat. The gym still carries the smells and echoes of past glory. This harkens back to hard-boiled crime novels and the copious amounts of similes and metaphors thrown into them. Miller said in an interview in 2006 that he never really intended to draw superheroes. He was out to draw crime stories. And one of his most repeated quotes in that interview was that he stole from the best, such as Will Eisner. But to be honest with you, this feels like Raymond Chandler that he's channeling. And it's right at home within this issue, which is a pure crime story versus a straight-up superhero tale, since Daredevil never really appears. As I mentioned, the image of Daredevil superimposed in red was a foil cover. I should mention uh, the Prestige Format book had cardstock covers. And the more I look at it, the body of Jack Murdock is pretty gruesome in Matt's arms, which, depending on your level of sensitivity, may be a good thing or a bad thing. It strikes the right tone right out of the gate, right down to the bare-bones plain block letter logo. This isn't a story about Daredevil. In fact... He's only going to appear in spirit. This is Matt Murdock learning to be a man, and a man without... No, no, not going to finish that. I will say Ramita Jr. is at the top of his game, and, you know, there are way too many instances of me being put off with the blocky style of John Jr., mostly the X-Men books of the 90s and Spider-Man. Sure, John Jr. cut his teeth on Daredevil, but he had a more streamlined, mainstream style that stuck to the style guides, which Miller oddly had as well. They had a similar evolution and, and a kind of a similar style at that. When I took a look at the spectacular Spider-Man issues in which Miller first drew Daredevil, I was really thrown by the fact that I didn't see a switch in style from Mooney to Frank Miller. These two issues look like the previous and subsequent issues, probably due to the inker, but both of these artists evolved or devolved, depending on your tastes, into blocky characters and more sloppy styles, like their ink blotters started leaking. However, having said that, and with John Jr.'s blocky style in effect here, it does work. It's not perfect, it's not what I would have chosen, but this isn't a typical Daredevil tale, so I do have a little bit of leniency since we're not looking at superhero forms, but more, well, character forms. But having said that, let's jump back into the story a bit and continue what we're looking at. Returning home, Matt helps his father to bed, taking Jack away from pining over an old picture of a woman named Maggie. Jack Murdock has bigger problems as the Fixer and his enforcer Slade use the threat of hurting Matt to strong-arm Jack into being hired muscle for the mob. And battling Jack Murdock's climb up the ranks in the boxing world begins as he spends his time out of the ring muscling people and businesses for protection money. Seeing how his life choices turned out, Jack urges Matt to promise to hit nothing but the books and make something of himself, but it's a promise that's hard to keep and Matt gets into a fight with a kid named Barkley. This leads to an argument with Jack in which Jack 
hits Matt in the face. Matt flees the apartment as Jack tries to apologize, but this event makes Matt realize that if his own father can be wrong, anybody can be wrong, and Matt vows to stop them by studying the law. And Matt does study the law and gives up his delinquent ways. Even when he's taking a beating, he stays true to his promise. But at night, Matt takes out his frustrations in the gym, and unknown to him, somebody is watching him from the shadows. Now, Maggie is a mystery for another day. I know a lot of us know who she is, especially since this was published well after the original run, but kudos to Miller for keeping the context without being sort of look-at-me mentality. It reads as a straightforward lead-in, not a nudge-and-wink kind of thing. The shot of Matt helping his dad to bed was lifted right off of this page for the Daredevil movie, which is better than people give it credit for, except Matt wasn't in his tidy whities Yes, that was a subliminal message about Daredevil the movie. The director's cut's far better, so stop your grousing. Affleck wasn't that bad. As I mentioned, and I probably will mention again, I'm not usually very keen on Ramita Jr.'s art. Too many lines, however, it fits a certain mood, and this book has that mood. It's dark, rough, nobody is completely innocent. Under Miller's revisionist pen and Ramita Jr.'s pencil, the fixer goes from a big brute to a shrewd mob boss fitting in with the times, and the fixer lets Slade do all of his work. Miller is very careful to show that Jack didn't go willingly or lightly into his role with the Fixer. He is beaten, and Jack takes the abuse, and it's only when Slade threatens Matt, who is witnessing all of this, by the way, that Jack relents and agrees to be hired muscle. This is Jack's hell on earth, which is being trapped into doing horrible things because he has no other options. There is nowhere to go outside of Hell's Kitchen, no solid work prospects, no family, just Matt, the last piece of the woman that he loves. And in this, we have our first major retcon, Jack Murdoch working for the mob, which admittedly makes a lot more sense. It adds more tragedy. He's not only fallen from grace as a fighter, but as a man and a father, and he is in a position of weakness. Uh, just a kick to the emotional teeth. And the saddest part is, Jack really has absolutely no idea that the Fixer has anything to do with his wins in the boxing ring. Not that he realized in the original, but in the first telling, Jack at least knew that the Fixer was affiliated with the sport. And then we have the Jack Murdoch steady hard speech, but with context. Jack has sold his soul to the devil, and he wants Matt to take a path that is the opposite of his. He's trapped, and it's claustrophobic. And he is doing this all for Matt. Make no mistake, even though Matt is at the center... This issue is about Jack Murdoch. And yes, Jack hits Matt as a reflex action. He's human, and he immediately realizes what he's done. It's horrific. Guess what? It's meant to be. This is a broken man who has lost his moral compass, and that is what Matt saw. Matt having this epiphany may be the most important thing in this issue, maybe even more important than the accident itself that gives him his ability. This makes Matt's withdrawal from the outside world more plausible, and you buy in a bit more. He's seen his dad hollowed out, He's putting the pieces together as to how, and he knows what is at stake for him if he goes down the road he's on. It also sets up the idea that his Daredevil persona is a sneaky lawyer's trick. A bit of a small print, if you will. He promises Dad to abide by the rules, and as a result of this moment, Matt develops this stringent view of what is right and what is wrong. He develops a very thin path to tread on. On this side is right, the other is wrong, and Matt is there to keep them separate. However, by this path that he's bound to, there are places that Matt cannot, as a man of honor, as a man of rules, go into. Enter Daredevil. It's a concept, a personality, an identity separate from his own, a technicality. Daredevil isn't bound by his promise to Jack. 
Daredevil doesn't exist on that thin path. He's free to go other places and do what needs to be done. The end result is a lawyer who abides by the letter of the law and a vigilante that will do whatever needs to be done to uphold the line between right and wrong. If Matt is walking a narrow path, Daredevil is removing shrubs or anything impeding that path. Now the idea has been present since the original origin, but Miller really puts a huge pile of ideas on the table to chew on. And Miller doesn't spood feed it per se, but it is pretty apparent and right up front. I don't credit Stan for the sheer genius of this concept. Sure, it's there in the original telling of the origin. Maybe I'm wrong, but most of Stan's pathos was by accident or added by the artist a bit. Miller brings it up front and points out that Daredevil is a loophole. Matt keeps his promise up to the point of being beaten and bullied relentlessly. Does that make Daredevil any less heroic? No. Does that make him any less Matt Murdock? Not really. As somebody pointed out, Matt would have been a hero regardless of the sense powers. And we're seeing that born here before the accident. This moment is that stamp. This moment shows Matt seeing the problem, literally and figuratively, and choosing to be a solution. In the end, he did become the solution, just not in the way he planned. As I mentioned, this is before the accident, but this is the birth of Daredevil, folks. Matt sitting on this shore, looking at the sunset into darkness, and realizing that the world needs help. The method doesn't matter. If it's in his studies, in a courtroom, or in a skin-tight red suit, he's going to see the right thing be done. This is the fulcrum point of the hero's journey, and Frank slides this moment into the same basic structure of the original story, finding some vacant spots in the narrative and making good use of it. But who is this mysterious man in the shadows of the gym watching Matt? Let's get back to the story and find out. Fate finds Matt Murdock as he saves an old man from being hit by a truck, a truck that spills radioactive material into Matt's eyes. Matt fights through the pain and survives, but is blinded. He receives a lot of visits from his father and a kind nun who gently kisses Matt on the head. Matt eventually returns to life, where it's a little bit new, a little bit different, and he's pitied by the public and trailed by a mysterious man in gray. The man finds Matt at the gym, trying to regain some of his skills before the accident, Matt's on a parallel bar. When Matt falls to the ground in tears, the man tells Matt to get up. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. The man leads Matt to the basement, stating that he was born blind and he can make a warrior out of Matt. The man instructs the boy to feel the air, but Matt feels nothing, not until the man slaps him. Matt feels that. And again, the man slaps him and then hits Matt on the head with a stick. <laughs> but Matt is able to deflect the next blow by recognizing the shape of the oncoming threat in the air. This is Stick and he's going to mentor Matt. Months pass, and under Stick's tutelage, Matt gets better and better at dealing with his blindness, and Stick even teaches him how to hit a bullseye with a bow and arrow. And the two rush across the rooftops of Hell's Kitchen free, and more nimble than even a sighted person. Okay, the actual accident plays out essentially the same, but it's a bit more intense, because now it's barrels falling from the truck, and the aftermath is recorded for us from Matt's point of view, and it is intense. Descriptions tell us his blood is burning, everything hurts, the sheets are like sandpaper, and the smells, people smell like bathtubs full of sweat. Makes me gag a little, but Miller makes it clear that this wasn't just a painless, simple event. His senses weren't just slightly altered. It was hell. But the recovery takes up a page, with small panels surrounded by blackness, which is what Matt is seeing. And yes, the nun is relevant for those that don't know, for those that do. Wink! But please put that on the wait and see list. But the nun tells Matt that his new senses are a gift from God and to keep them a secret from his dad. And the fact that it is the nun that makes Matt realize that he will survive makes perfect sense. It is a nice touch and very comforting. Now the moment of the nun kissing Matt was taken right off of this page again and into the director's cut of the Ben Affleck movie. 
still better than people give it credit for. No real mention is made of it. The nun simply shows up as it happens on the page. Matt caresses the cross hanging from her neck. And I would be remiss to not say that this is a wonderful juxtaposition for Daredevil, a man who will be somewhat defined for wearing the image of a devil finding comfort in a cross. Daredevil's costume choice is rarely fully explained. The term Daredevil refers to somebody who does stunts or dangerous things with little or no care for their own safety, and this is supported by his moniker, the Man Without Fear. But even in the yellow and brown Bumblebee version, we have horns. How do you combine those? The only thing is the name having devil in it. After all, man in a devil costume should have caused a huge response from conservative groups. But there was no such response recorded. Now, as a side note, I wonder if the sect and mindset contributed to the low sales of the book. Sort of the conservative view of it's a man in a full red costume, a devil costume. I wonder if that staved off some of the purchases. I wonder if parents were a little bit leery of that. And here's a better question. Where was the Daredevil and Hot Stuff crossover? That's something that really should have happened. Can We, we can get an Archie and Punisher crossover, but Daredevil and Hot Stuff can't happen? Come on. Come on. Okay, I'm getting off on a tangent. I'm going to leave the Daredevil and Hot Stuff for fanfic and give my biggest compliment that I can give to a man without fear. Even though it's chock full of Miller's contributions and references to them, the layperson could pick this up and follow it without getting lost. Miller, as we're going to see, added a lot to the character's tapestry from Turk to Josie's Bar and more, and as I've said, editorial edict following Miller's run seemed to be do what Miller did. That made this latter-day retelling of the origin a potential disaster. It could have been something that was stuffed with a lot of self-referential material. There could have been a lot of editor's notes. It could have been degraded into self-parody. But it was a retelling that integrated Miller's creations into it without becoming a distraction. At least in this issue. <laughs> I think that the series benefits from being a standalone series rather than a string of issues of the main book because you can choose whether or not to make this canon in your own head. And that's a question I'm going to be asking as we get to the end of this miniseries is, is it canon? Is it just meant to be a one-off? And we'll get, we'll get there. I'm not going to answer that right out of the gate. But if it had been in the ongoing series, it would have perhaps necessitated framing sequences to tie it into the thin current continuity and reference previous issues with the miniseries format or what would have been the graphic novel and the prestige format at that, Miller was free to tell his stories and you're in kind of a different mindset. So it was aimed at the correct audience. And by that I mean this was geared to the fans of the original run who were at this point a little bit older. If you think that that run came out in 80 to 84, then you realize that those are people who may have been 7, 8 then, or even older, 14. They're coming into their adulthood, or late teen. So kudos to knowing the audience and choosing the right format for that. And that is another compliment for this series as a concept in a whole. It addresses continuity and the retcons that were made to it by Miller's own hand. It's an admission that things were retconned and here is the proper places where those changes fit. It fills in a gap in the character's story and gives definite answers to where those changes occurred. I mean, Miller could have essentially said, screw you, read the stories, make up your own mind, put it together in your own head instead, Miller stepped up and not only answered those questions, but also told a solid character study story, that's when. Now one of the major changes to the origin, or additions to the origin, is Stick. Let's talk about him, which is a big retcon on the origin. Because while Miller was remaking the origin to sync up with his version of Daredevil from his run, at least he is considered enough to give us the lay of the land. Adding Stick and some training to the story doesn't wreck it, I think it helps it. It puts links together from Matt going from a blind boy with radar sense to the nimble and agile daredevil, it's logical. You don't just jump into that, pun intended again. It's also visually cool and fascinating to see the tumblers falling into place. Miller doesn't disregard the origin, he expands it. 
and he does so naturally at this stage. The entire miniseries is a decompressed version of the same story with some large changes that come later. On the other side of that token though, I could have done without the bow and arrow scene, or at least the length of it to be more accurate, a bit too much. It's two and a half pages of shooting the bow and arrow when a few panels would do. The rooftop scenes are more than worth it though. It's striking with the snow and the colors and the characters are silhouetted against the city. Like Spider-Man, New York is a character in the Daredevil saga in an intimate way, and we're seeing that. Which brings us to the final leg of this issue. As Jack Murdock jogs in Central Park, the Fixer pulls up in a limo and orders him to throw the next fight, or the usual threats apply. But when fight night comes, Jack thinks about how he told his son one thing that is worth a damn. Never give up, and he knocks out his opponent, which does not endear him to the Fixer. After the fight, Jack walks calmly into the back alley and simply tells the waiting muscled goons to get it over with, and they do. They beat him mercilessly until the gunman finally delivers a blow of mercy, and the gunshot echoes in the alley as the first issue closes. In the original telling of the origin, the death of Jack Murdock was over in three panels. Jack walks, gunshot, medics. Here it goes well beyond that, and Jack suffers for his sins. He walks calmly into it, knowing what is about to happen, and in the end, it's not that he won, but he didn't lose. This is Darth Vader rejecting the Emperor, and redeeming his soul, proving the Fixer never had it all in the end. Note, no framing sequences, just a straightforward origin. And Ramita brings his A-game. The line work communicates the grit of the story. For all the things I don't like about Ramita Jr., nobody does rain better. Or a dirty city. Bar none. The city and the rooftops are breathtaking. This is Daredevil's world in an alternate reality nestled within ours. Now the issue abruptly ends, which is not helped by the digital unlimited presentation that I was reading it from. That's based on the format and the changes to the format. As Ramita Jr. was constantly forced to create more and more transitional material as the length of the story got bigger and bigger. That doesn't disregard this. That brings up my complaint section. This issue just stops, which is something we're going to see on most of the issues here. We're on board, we're on the journey, and suddenly it's done just as this is brought to a simmer. Now for the trade, or even the digital version that I'm reading, that's not too harsh. I just move on to the next issue, or turn the page. However, looking at it and thinking about it in its original context and its original release as a monthly miniseries, this would have frustrated the crap out of me. It didn't stop at a moment of pure intrigue or a high-flying cliffhanger. It came to a stop in an odd spot with the sound of a gun echoing in the alley. One more page would have been sufficient. Cut the bow and arrow scene and give us Matt finding his father's body. That is an ending. But I'm not here to tell Frank Miller how to write his stories. He seems to do okay with that without me. Now despite the ending and looking at the story as a whole, as an issue, and a character study, this really works. I mourn Jack Murdock in a way that I haven't before. And I understand Matt and how he views the world and how he has Daredevil as a sly backup plan to keep the world in order. And there is enough new entries to the origin to keep this comic enthralling and fresh, and I'm already looking forward to the next issue, despite having read it. And if you want to read this issue, it's collected in trade paperback form as well. Uh, it's in Daredevil the Man Without Fear trade paperback, Marvel Visionaries John Romita Jr. hardcover, and of course, the Marvel Digital Unlimited subscription service. Now, of course, comes the time when you become the star of the show. It's time for your emails. Here's another new email. It's a slightly lighter week this week as far as emails and comments go. But first up, I eat crow thanks to an email from W. Blaine Dowler with the subject line, The Kid Did Have a Name. What? Blaine writes, Hi Dave, check the last page of Daredevil number 139 again. The boy's name was Tim. Blaine. Blaine, 
I didn't believe you. I'm going to be honest with you. I was a little bit indignant. I'm like, oh, how could frazzle, frazzle. I grumbled and mumbled to myself. I pulled out the issue again, thinking that Blaine's sickness was getting to him because he's feeling ill, and I do hope he gets to feeling better. I popped open the last page, and I saw no name. And then I'm like, I told him. And then I looked again. And yeah, his name is Tim. It's mentioned once. Daredevil offhandedly mentions it in a speech bubble that I went over several times. So, Mia Culpa, the kid is named Tim. My powers of observation aren't absolute, so I do and will miss things. But good watching out, Blaine, and I do hope you get to feeling better. And I hope you enjoyed the Fantasticast. As you mentioned, you were listening to that. I believe that would have been the roast episode in which Daredevil made an appearance. Next up, an email from Michael McClarty. Subject line, horny for Hornhead or Weeder is a stone-cold comics pimp. And Michael writes, Greetings and salivation. Thank you for putting a spotlight on Marvel's best B-lister, Daredevil. I've always liked your humor and delivery when I've caught you guesting on other comics podcasts. So, when I heard your promo piece during Just One of the Guys, I immediately perked up and subscribed via the iTunes store. My Daredevil origin story goes back to the mid-80s. I was born in 72, and I've lived most of my life in San Diego. From 82 to 2009, I went to Comic-Con. Once I had a little cash to my name, the Bronze Age beckoned. I couldn't afford my favorite hero's backlist, Spidey. But Iron Man and Daredevil were surprisingly affordable. Once I got my hands on the Miller run, Daredevil found a special place in my heart. I also read the Nascenti run, and along with JRJR's unorthodox art style, the monthly became my favorite title. Luckily, Daredevil has been handled by some great writers over the years, some less memorable than others. <coughs> Diggle. And now, in the podcasting world, I think he's found himself in good hands. Reading that back, it sounds a bit more homoerotic than I intended. Keep up the great work, and thanks for sharing your passion for Mr. Murdoch with the world. Mike McClarty. Wow, it looks like I owe Sean Engel a royalty check. I'll just get that in the mail to Sean as soon as I can, which I'm broke after Christmas, so that's going to be a while, Sean. Just to let everyone know, no Daredevils have been inappropriately touched in the making of this podcast, but if I were to stray onto a different path, I could do far worse than Matt Murdock. I think my wife would even understand that a bit. In fact, she might be jealous. But I do appreciate your kind words. I do hope I'm doing the character justice. You mentioned the talent that has worked on Daredevil. And when you think about it, just the spring of creators who have launched from Hornhead is quite staggering. And for all the lackluster comments I see about the Anne Nascenti run here and there, it has its flaws. I'll admit that. But for the years that she wrote the book, it remained a tight, even-keel ship. The thing that has me thinking when I read your email that I've been kind of chewing on for the last couple days is the idea of getting a complete run of Daredevil, which I've considered several times. Now, mine runs from 191 to about 317 and then starts skipping around. And then the Mark Wade run I've been buying digitally for space. Now, the earliest issue I have, and I have very few in between that and 191, is, issues number, is issue number seven, which is the first appearance of the red costume. I, it's kind of my Daredevil number one since, well, I, I don't like the yellow costume. But what came down to is between the essentials, my Frank Miller omnibus, and then my actual collection, I have it there to read. I can go pick it up. So I've talked myself out of the cost, which leads me to Mike's comment on the post. So Mike McClarity's comment is on Dave's Daredevil podcast episode 7, Death is a Black Widow, which was the Black Widow episode. And he wrote, do you know how difficult it's been finding this book in near mint? The white borders don't hold up well. I gotta admit, every copy that I've seen in decent condition has been lackluster, and yet, even though I have not seen a mint copy or near mint copy, even though I don't believe in mint, so near mint to be fair, the ones that I have seen are in lame shape and they go for $15 and up. That's hard for me to swallow. For that price, I can have an essential, which is about a week's worth of reading for me at the pace I go at. 
So that's how I decided to pursue a complete run in reprints. I have one more Essential to go to bridge the gap between my Essential collection and the Omnibus. They just have to release Essential Daredevil Volume 7. Now one thing I will mention is if you want to email me, the email address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com, practically the show's title. You can also hit me up on comments on the page. Also, Twitter. I am at Dave Weeder. I know it's so creative. But if you do respond to me on, on Twitter, please use the hashtag Daredevil Podcast. All one word. So hashtag Daredevil Podcast. That way it's easier to find you and bring into the show. And of course, iTunes reviews are welcome. They help the show get noticed. So if you will take a moment to leave a review, I would very much appreciate that. But thank you to everybody who me- emailed in this week. I look forward to more emails from you next week. Speaking of which, next week, Jack Murdock is dead. Matt begins a path to becoming the Man Without Fear in the second issue of Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. Until then, remember that justice is blind, but it can see in the dark. The one they call a man without fear. Never far away when everything is near. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.